This week's performance anxiety features artist, musician, filmmaker, and more Steven Serio. Steven's work with the performance art band The Residence is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. He's drummed with bands like Drunk Tank, artists like Didi Ramon, put out solo albums, and more. He's made psychedelic art and films. He's done posters for King Crimson, Primus, and a whole lot more. He also has worked with other artists like Robert Crumb. That's not giving too much away for this episode. That actually just scratches the surface. He's also one of those people who you can talk to and just not want to stop talking to. Check out his art on Facebook. Check out his Instagram account, Stephen underscore Serio, and his website, StephenSerio.com. Please enjoy my discussion with Stephen on this week's Performance Anxiety. Hey everybody, this is Steven Serio, artist, musician, filmmaker guy, and I'm here on performance anxiety with the lovable, sharp, and intelligent Mark Shea. Take it away, Mark. Wow, this really does, this really does trigger like a gland of performance anxiety just <laughs> having to read that. I'll improvise and talk to you for two hours, but you tell me something to read about clamming up. I've never been to Detroit. I don't, I don't know. Oh, it's a great city. Yeah. Really interesting. The people are really great. And it's just so interesting to drive around because it's in this beautiful state of ruin and bears are starting to move into the city. And What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my <laughs> gosh. I, that's amazing. <laughs> See, I was, I, I was a photographer for years and years. I went to college for it. And that would be amazing to go get some, uh, you know, wildlife awesome. photos in the uh, urban area of, of Detroit would be incredible. Oh, yeah, it's all photo ops there. That whole city is just a giant photo op. Oh, man. Really There's this one street, um, they called it Hate Street, but not H-A-I-G-H-T, like San Francisco, H-A-T-E Street. <laughs> oh, no. Why? And if you drive down it, for some reason, people will get off their porches and throw stuff at your car. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And That's- sure enough drive there once and he goes you sure you want to do this and i go when's the last time you did this goes, oh, 15 years ago we drive down two kids come out in the street with a two by four and throw it at their rental car whoa <laughs> oh they my. just don't like cars on the street that's insane <laughs> everything's that, weird about that place yeah that it sounds like it's an entire it's like a mental facility or something that's crazy oh yeah just that one street <laughs> oh my gosh man well, thank you so much for coming on with me tonight. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I've been looking forward to this. So I want to okay. I want to find out a little bit more about you because I've done some research, and it's funny because I, while I was looking up some of your work, and I've recognized the artwork, but I had I never knew that you had done it. I never knew the artist behind it. I wanted to ask you how you got involved. In art, is it something that that you've been doing your whole life? Uh, and and how did you kind of how did you develop your very unique individual style? I know that's kind of a weird, uh, a broad question to ask, but um, no, it's yeah, but um, you know, it's one of those things. I was an only child, so it was. I spent a lot of time alone when I was a kid. My mother used to have to drag me outside because I knew I'd entertain myself. 
at a young age. And so I was always drawing and I, and my parents were very into music. So we would switch from like Johnny Cash and Patsy Cline to Louis Armstrong within a heartbeat. Oh, and okay. so it was like, I grew up with jazz around the house and then like classical classic country. So then I started looking for new things. I stumbled on like a, you know, I was born in 65. So this was maybe like uh uh, 72, 73, I stumbled on uh, Deep Purple for the first time, and that got me really into music. And um, I was always drawing, and um, like obsessively as a kid, and I just stuck with it. And when it got the time to thinking about going to college, I knew what I was going to do. And I knew I didn't have the the focus, I mean, as most you know, 18 year olds don't to do it on your own. I mean, you know, if you can, if you have enough self starter in you at that age, I mean, you know, uh, I, you know, I applaud you, yeah. but I knew that I, I knew I needed to be, have being a structured thing to have someone make me draw every day. So I did that, went through, got out of school, immediately to New York. And, um, when I got to New York, I felt, you know, I moved from a suburb of, you know, New York, up in uh, central New York. I grew up in a town called Liverpool. And then I, you know, I dropped myself right off in the middle of uh, New York City in 1988 um, with uh, $700 in my pocket, which now it's funny, you couldn't even (laughs) get, I mean, I was able to, you know, pay uh, pay a month's rent and put safety deposit down for that much. That's how cheap New York was. And I was in Forest Hills on top of it. Oh, man. But I was dropped in the middle of it and all, and I think my style changed like overnight from the subway trains because they were still painted back then and they were just beautiful. The obsessive quality of it too, it was very horror vacuous. Like there was no space on the ceiling or the walls and that really had an impact on me. All that line and, and all of that and going on and, you know, you're and the humbling experience of New York City too had an effect on me. Like, you, you know, you're used to in a small town thinking, oh, someone might recognize me because I play drums or because I do whatever the way you're thinking as a kid. Yeah. And you get to New York and, um, you know, Kenny Scharf is walking down the street. You know, I bumped into John Giorno. You know, these people are like friends of Andy Warhol. Yeah. And you go, wow. And it was so liberating to know that you were the smallest thing in the world it was so liberating because when you're, when you're small and you're insignificant as, as it made me feel, instead of make having that feel like it was beating me down, I realized that I had freedom to do anything I wanted. Okay. If that makes any sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. And I mean, that's a, I think, you know, some people might disagree, but I think that's a very American um, point of view, a very American thing. Like you look at things like, like, well, I'll tell you the first thing that made me want to be an artist was professionally was when I was 13, cable TV was new. <laughs> you know, that's all <laughs> I am. I'm turning, 50, I'm turning 53 in two days. And well, happy, I was happy early birthday. Night. Oh, thanks. And, um, I was staying up late watching night flight. And um, Night Flight put on the residence Mark of the Mole, the Mole Show came oh, on. Oh, wow. Of the will of the people. Too long have my studies and research been for my own pleasures and distractions. Civilization leads the minds of its people. My first project will be the free of our underground and, and I had never seen anything like that. 
And I was like, wow, these people are just painting. Like there was a primitiveness to it. And like these people are hand painting pieces of wood and pushing them across the floor and doing minimalistic keyboard parts. And you could tell they didn't really know how to use the keyboard, but that wasn't going to keep them from doing it. And that inspired me for literally the rest of my life. That inspired me. That was to me, it was going, Hey, look, it's an open door. You know, you don't need this. You don't need that. You don't need to grow up with this. You don't need to have had this. You don't need schooling for this. Jump in and do it. And I've run on that my whole life. I started doing films about eight years ago. And it was on that same thought that I had from seeing that residence film where I go, you know what? If I don't start doing films, that means that I never did any films. What is worse? I'd rather fall on my face than not ever have done it. And if I don't enjoy it, I move on. But that's how I did everything. I lied my way into everything, Mark. <laughs> I got to New York. I was trained in illustration, but I'd never done a color illustration. Entertainment Weekly said to me, do you do color illustrations? Yes. <laughs> I had, I was able to, and, and I had gotten to know a bunch of people because I worked at a gallery. So I was able to call some of my favorite artists, you know, people that I grew up looking at their stuff. I like called Gary Panter and asked them and he told me, call Mark Byer, you know, and I was like, <laughs> Mark Byer, my, still one of my favorite cartoonists. Wow. And, um, so, you know, um, Mark, you know, tells me how to do it using acetate. I pull it off. Someone calls and says, we need to have a screen printing job. Do you prepare stuff for screen print? Yep. yep. <laughs> I've done it before in my life. But everything, every, there was everything. Hey, um, you have your drums here. Do you want to play in this band? Yep. I didn't. Yeah. My drums were five hours away, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, I was just ready to go, you know. That's that's amazing. And it's... it's uh... It's something I wish I had done a little bit more, I guess, uh, earlier in my own life. Uh, like I said, I, I was telling you earlier in the show, I, was, uh, I went to school for photography and, um, you know, I, I, I kind of wish I had I had discovered that because I kind of do the same thing now with, with this show and I, I, another show that I do, another podcast that I do, I'll just reach out to people. I don't, what's the worst they can do? Say no, not like it, not hire, you know, whatever job I'm doing now, not hire me, big deal. Who cares? But if I don't have to extend. Yeah. If I like, like you're saying, if I don't take the chance and and go out and ask somebody to come on, they're not going to come on. But if I do ask, they might say yes. And then we can have a cool conversation and find out more about these people that I've, that I've enjoyed listening to or, or seeing their work for years. So, uh, and in that vein, you mentioned the residents, and uh, that is that's actually one of my earliest. I guess it's a weird phrase to say, but earliest cable TV memories, because uh, my grandparents no. were the, like the first people I knew to have cable TV, and my brother and I are watching MTV, and and this dancing eyeball comes on the screen, and and, and a, another big skull comes, on the screen, and I'm just sitting there staring at it, going, "What in the hell am I watching?" and you know, I'm we're we're close to the same age, and and I remember watching it going, I don't, I don't get this, but this is really cool. I don't know what the hell I'm watching, but and it stuck with me. And when um, when I found out that you had done work with the residents, it it, it brought me back to that time, and it, it was really cool. So, what kind of work have you done with the residents? Um. I've been working with them now for um, 
Um, it's going on definitely more than it's. I think around twenty four, twenty five years. Wow! I've been working with them on on and off on different projects, and um, recently, I mean, a few years ago, everything I did with them, prints, uh, films. Uh, the toys I did for them, everything was put in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. So they put it all in MoMA, That's which was, that couldn't have been more of a thrill. And to have it be with, you know, the group that influenced me to, you know, pretty much start being an artist and a group that's, you know, credited with the invention of the music video and the invention of performance art. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's a good person to ride on their back and do it, you know? <laughs> for, for 25 years. How did you How did you uh, meet up with the band and, and, and start working with them? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to credit, I'm going to credit um, some of the artists that I met in New York. I mean, when I showed up in New York, I was working at Psychedelic Solution Gallery. Okay. And um, um, I got that job by lying. Again, um, <laughs> nothing, nothing evil, you know, right. but lying again. I went in, I wanted to get in the show. My skin was thick. I showed up and there was a show with Rick Griffin in it, H.R. Giger, Mark Mothersbaugh. And I was like, I want to be in this show. This is like the coolest. And I was like, I'm going to show this guy my portfolio. Demanded, well, demanded. I didn't, you know, you know, I demand to see. But, but I walked, just walked in cold and I'm like, is the boss here? I want to be in this show. And he felt for me because it was like I was, I'd been in New York for literally a day and a half. Oh, my God. So it was Jacob Burcaster, and he gave me, uh, put me in the show with them. And it was the most thrilling day of my life. I knew right then I was hooked. And oh. my mother goes, I don't know whether to cry or be happy for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> she knew that was it. You know, yeah. to be in, you know, it was like, you know, some of those guys were heroes of mine growing up. Like Giger, my God, oh, and, yeah. you know. I was one of the, him and Roger Dean were the first two people I had books, art oh, yeah. books by when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it, but being there, the type of wisdom I would get, there were shows, you know, I would sit around and talk to Robert Williams. You know, here I was, I was 22, and Robert Williams was giving me advice, who proved to be like one of the sweetest men. He did so much for me when I was a young artist. When Juxtapo started up, he made sure I got in. Just a great guy. I, I don't know if many people know what a great guy is. I'm sure they do, but just very supportive, just great guy. And he was there at the same time because they were doing a Zap show there. A guy was hanging out having pizza with Rick Griffin. Oh, man. You know, Jeez. talking art. Ron Turner from Last Gasp, getting advice from Ron Turner, you know? I mean, that guy is underground publishing, you know? He's yeah. an incredible guy. And it was like one time I was literally having pizza with, with Rick Griffin and Ron Turner. And I was like, this is odd. And then I was just... <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm getting business advice the whole time from people like Robert Crumb. Crumb wanted to stay away. He was even, this is, you know, late 80s, and he was still so famous then. He tried to stay away from people, and he'd go behind the counter with me during the day because they stayed there for like a week. Oh, wow. And, and this girl comes in from the New York Times, and she says, is Robert Crumb here? And Robert doesn't admit it's him, but he turns and he He's working in his sketchbook like he always does. And he's, and he's, you know, everyone's seen that even in the movie, you know, he yeah. constantly works in that sketchbook. 
And he was working his sketchbook, and he said, he starts talking to her. Hey, how long have you worked there? And she's like, uh, a few years. Is you know, is Robert Crumb here? Like she doesn't recognize oh Robert Crumb, God. and he's wearing the straw hat and all that. <laughs> and, and and he just talks her up for maybe three minutes, and then he says, "I'm Robert Crumb. How much does the job pay?" And she said, uh, two hundred fifty dollars." And he goes, "Oh, five hundred dollars." She goes. No, it pays $250. He goes, oh, yeah, $500 is fine. And she goes, okay, I'll go make a call. <laughs> cell phone. So she goes out onto the street before I can even offer her to use our phone. She goes out in the street, comes back in. She goes, okay, I can get the 500 He rips a page out of his sketchbook, and he goes, here it is. She goes to reach for it, and he puts it in my chest pocket of my shirt and he goes steve will have it here come back with the check and he'll give you the drawing oh man <laughs> and i was man to have the balls to do that you know that you know i was you know one year out of, out of school and then you know you had people that would come in and you know gary panter laid some wisdom on me and rick griffin things that would change the way i did business and this leads us back to the residence thing once i was talking to gary once and he said to me you know, I, I, well, I asked him outright, I said, man, what was that like? How did you get that peewee gig, you know, doing the peewee sets and the stickers? And uh, I mean, because what a great gig. Yeah. Okay. And he, goes, he goes, listen, don't ever sit at home. Like he got almost stern with me. He doesn't remember any of this, by the way. But it's still <laughs> for me. Um, he said, don't ever sit at home. Don't ever sit at home waiting for the truck full of money to pull up. Don't wait for the people to knock on your door, knock on their door. He goes, I was down to $50 and I spent $40 on Xeroxing and I would slide it under Pee Wee's door of his um, dressing room in uh, LA when he was living in LA. And he goes, and then five years later, I got a call for the Pee Wee gig. And that's a big lesson learned, you know? Yeah. And then Rick Griffin's telling me, he goes, I was in there one night working after work until like five in the morning and he stayed up with me and hung out. What a, you know, it's like a fairy tale that time, you know, especially at that age. Yeah. And you just chatting with me the whole time. And I'm like, dude, I'm so fucking tired. And he goes, Steve, he goes, if, if 20 years goes by and you're still pulling on lighters like this, that means you made it and you pulled off being an artist. So revel in the fact that you're up working all night on this. That's something you should be proud of. He goes, because, you know, people that aren't getting gigs aren't up at night. And they don't have the heart to stay up until five o'clock in the morning. He stayed up with me that late. I got all my paper cut for my first zine. I was working on my first zine, you know, okay. stuff like that. It could be a long time. So that is pretty much how I hooked up with the residents. I just had persistence. I heard there was a record show they were doing for um, Tectones Records out in Hoboken. And um, so I took the train out to Hoboken. And I went and hung out and I left a pile of Xeroxes there for the band because I knew that they knew the band. And right. I was never into caring who the band was. You know, we're going through a weird age now with the residents where everyone thinks they knew who they are. And that movie came out where, I don't know, it just seemed like it was a Residence 101 movie where the whole thing is kind of like, you know, like kind of like, like wink, wink, we're revealing who they are, you know, and yeah. I, I don't know. It's not, it didn't bring on a great new age, you know, to me for the residence fans. I think a lot of people now just want to revel in the fact that they know who they are. And I feel like that kind of wrecks it a little bit. I mean, it didn't wreck the band. They're, they'll always do great music. I'm not criticizing the band or anything. 
right, uh, right. the group. Uh, it just, you know, created that new age of it. But that's how I did it, just by sending copies and copies and copies of stuff. And then I started sending stuff to the office and more and more and more. And then one day I got a call about um, a movie, about them doing a film that never happened. And then there was another one that never happened. Oh, and, this, and the third and the fourth and the fifth did happen. So wow. it worked out good. So but that was it. a matter of persistence. Yeah. That I learned these states. Of, another one, if before I forget was uh, Joe Coleman was also very cool to me. I got to New York and Joe, I, I was talking to Joe, I go, well, I need to run a studio and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, and he's like, she's like, shut the F up about studios. And I go, why? He got almost like angry and he walks into his kitchen and he opens up the pantry door and he's got a table nailed at an angle in the back of the pantry where you couldn't even stretch your arms out to your side. And he goes, that's my effing studio. Don't let these people make you believe that you need to go spending a thousand dollars a month to be an artist, to have a studio. He goes, you work where you can work. And he goes, he goes, don't fall for that. Don't start doing that. He goes, you're going to spend more money doing that because you can work at home. You save money. You don't have to do as much work and you can hang on longer. Wow. So it's like getting advice from all of these guys, you know, yeah, your it, first school. And it, I've lived by that stuff. Yeah. Guys who have made a big, you know, names are sitting there telling you, Hey, you don't have to, you don't have to do this kind of stuff to be a, to be successful. That's, and, and at a young, such a young age, I mean, that's priceless. Even if they weren't really names per se, they're great artists and they're uh, great guys. You know what I mean? On yeah. top of all, of it. I know what you mean, but yeah, on top of all of it, I would have taken that advice, whether you, because it, you, it just rang true. You know, there was yeah. a resonance to it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, like I said, getting that kind of advice so early on is is invaluable. I wish, I wish I had uh, some of the similar experiences with uh, some of my artwork. That would have been, that would have been helpful. <laughs> Instead of wanting, you know, a certain piece of equipment, realizing that I can do it, I just have to do the art a different way. Ah, uh, you know, some that's important stuff to learn too, because you find out that there's ways that you can finish something, you know, a hundred hours quicker, you know, that's a good thing sometimes, yeah. you know, just doesn't sacrifice the quality of the work. So now your work is very, very, uh, unique. You know, you, you, I see your work and I know you've done it. And, and it, like I was saying before, I've seen several pieces not knowing they were, it was you who had done it, but I've seen them before. Uh, as I was doing research for the show and, and trying to find things to ask you, because it's sometimes uh, interviewing an artist is, is is difficult to find. It's difficult to find questions, the right questions to ask. And what I wanted to know is how you got into uh, doing some of these posters and things, because I've, I've listened to some of the, the music. Um, Drunk Tank, um, The Residents, and I'm looking at some of the, the people you've done posters for it, it's it seems that uh your style of art goes along with some of the, the music that you've made but i wouldn't have thought of king crimson hiring you to do posters and things like that how did you get jobs with with uh and i'm going to throw out some of these these uh people you've done posters for because they're amazing king crimson uh negative land white zombie obviously the residents uh les claypool semi-sonic 
Monster Magnet. Uh, let's see. Dust Devils, John Popper, Manor Astro Man. Is it a matter of getting one gig and then somebody sees it and then they ask and it just keeps to keep snowballing? Or is it you going out and saying, hey, I like this band. I'm going to be persistent and keep throwing my info at them and, and get the work from them through my persistence? Well, I've got a nice, big, long, juicy, wearisome answer for that. Hopefully not wearisome. (laughs) 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 um, Music to me is music and art um, almost almost of equal importance. They're both kind of like the same thing to me at this point, at least my art and my music. They really, for the first time in my life, since I hit my 40s, they – feel like the same thing. And I'm not one to use the word expression because I don't, so that means that you know what you're trying to say. I don't know what I'm saying and I don't want to know what I'm saying. If that makes any sense, okay. I want to be entertained by it too. I want to look at my stuff and hear my stuff and go, why did I make that choice? Cause that's what I love about music. Like, you know, Captain Beefheart and John Coltrane, Zappa and the residents and soft machine are probably my favorite things in the world music wise. Okay. I made the full intention of letting the music that I love influence my art. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, but in a way I will, um, I tried to illustrate the feeling of it where my paintings to me in my head look like Coltrane. Now that's a big order to fill. And of course I haven't pulled that off, (laughs) but in my head I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to have, that sense of improvisation and, you know, color. And I'm trying, I, you know, it's just something I try to do, you know, and of course you can't do it, but I really like to think that the music made its way into the art somehow, you know? And when I started doing posters for free jazz and everything, I realized I'm not going to use my tight art for that. It didn't fit. It looked wrong. So I started using my more abstract work, which was influenced by listening to free form jazz and you know william parker and um you know eric dolphy john coltrane but to let me go back earlier though the whole thing started for me with um zines because i was able to stretch out and you know that community people forget how great that community was you know through fact sheet five you know and you know, maximum rock and roll and, you know, all that where you would have these contact with these people where you're trading tapes and you're trading zines and everyone, people were drawing and people were doing great stuff. There was people like Bob X who I, I've always loved Bob's work and, um, you know, just a lot of people doing zines. I, it went from monster stuff to, and it was just all Xeroxed okay. and it was all, you cheaply printed and you would just make your own at home and you'd send out a hundred of them and it felt so good. And it, it, it fit in with that. Never don't worry about knocking. You knock on the doors yourself. Don't wait at home. It filled that like you'd be at parties and you'd be handing your zines out to people and they went home with essentially a little portfolio of your work. So then from doing the zines and everything, there were some of them that were a little bit larger, like chemical imbalance was the first magazine that I worked with that was, you know, a pure art and music magazine. Okay. And, um, and from that I started working for dust devils and I did a poster for dust devils 
And then I would later on, I would play with them a few times and uh, become friends with them over the years. And I still play with Michael from Dust Devils. He plays on some of my Atlantic Drone records. And But um, okay. that's how I started into posters was from that. And then from the posters, I got Exit Magazine and started working for Exit with George Petros, who remains a really close friend to this day. And, you know, I would do my own thing. I was drawing like biology book stuff. It looked like, you know, biology uh, stuff, like x-ray versions of biology books. Oh, and I was I was going into New York Times with those. I went into oh. New York Times. That's how thick my skin is. <laughs> like, you were saying before, like you were saying before, you got, you, you, you were saying, you know, um, I can't remember what context you said it in, but the idea of you just get, you were just putting things out there and like, you know, um, um, I can't remember what you said that reminded me of that, but you said something that reminded me of that, like getting it there and getting it in front of them and not being scared. And I, there I was in New York Times, and they're like, what exactly do you want for us? From- <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, well, do you ever need anything like this? And they're like, no, don't ever <laughs> So then at the time, Village Voice had – um. You, you don't realize these things because I thought it was a coincidence there because I wasn't used to it. I grew up in a small town in central New York. I didn't realize that because Wes Wilson was art directing that that was the Wes Wilson that yeah. one of the psychedelic <laughs> poster arts. I didn't know that. I thought it was just a coincidence. Wes Wilson. I didn't know I was talking to Wes Wilson, you know, <laughs> once again, which is strange, but it, it was, uh, but Wes, took a uh took a bit of a shine to my work and um he said look you know you're doing biology book drawings <laughs> but listen we need stuff more like this like he's explaining to me like we need drawings of things that we can say this is a dog with Elvis riding its back with a candle in its mouth whatever <laughs> and so I tried again I got a little more figurative and and then he go no, try this. And then a few months later, I'd go back again. So I was like, man, I really want to get illustration. Seemed like doing that would be better than working at, uh, at, um, at a gallery. Not that it wasn't a blast working at that gallery. It was at psychedelic solution. Yeah. But I was, but at that point I was like, I, I, the, one of the girls at, um, work came into work one day and said, I slept with Dee Dee Ramone last night. <laughs> I said, I said, oh, you did? Yeah. And I go, and I go, okay, I don't want to know details, but is DD cool? She goes, he does not like to wear condoms. And I said, okay, all right, that's all I need to know. <laughs> 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 and then she said, and I said, okay, I said that's a little bit scary. And she yeah. goes, yeah, but he's talking about jamming. Would you want to come in and jam and play drums? Now I had promised myself I was never going to play drums again. Oh man! And then all of a sudden, I'm playing with DD Ramon. Jeez. So now this leads into me becoming an artist because I was talking to R.J. Smith on the phone, one of the writers for The Voice, who's with The Voice back then. And because um, I was up there talking to Wes Anderson again, trying to, con- I mean, not Wes Anderson, Wes Wilson, <laughs> trying, to con- 
<laughs> trying to convince him that I was going beyond biology book illustration. And I was up there and I started talking to RJ and he goes, was that you playing with Dee Dee Ramone the other night? And I started telling him how Joey Ramone was paying off the sound man to wreck our mixes because he wanted Dee Dee back in the band. And I don't blame him just to feel guilty about that. We're like, why don't you go back to the Ramones, you know? Yeah. But he had just, he never explained it very well, but I guess he just had enough for a while. Who knew? Yeah. And yeah, I never found out why, but from that, Wes Wilson goes, I'm going to hire you now. And I said, why? And he goes, we're going to do an RJ is going to write up an article about that. And I want you to do a portrait of Dee Dee Ramone. Now you have to do a portrait. I don't want to see paramecium in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want single cell organisms in this. I so I did it. And that was it. They started using me at the Village Voice back wow. then. It paid 125 pop. My rent was only 300. Okay. So then from there, it turned into, hey, my friends up at Guitar World magazine, Jesse Reyes, work for him. And then it turned into Entertainment Weekly. And then all of a sudden, Entertainment Weekly, you'd stop by there and, you know, you would just roam in and bring everyone some donuts or something. And you could walk out with $2,000 worth of work. Wow. To, in, you're making seven times what your rent was in, in a week or two. Jeez. So, but from that, you know, doing from that, do the first gig there with the dust devils, it turned into other bands needing posters. So they were usually black and white. I knew a guy, the monster magnet gig happened. It was someone that worked. He was their crew or something. And he said, they have a single coming out. This is before they were big. Of course, this right. is a great band. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're just still abandoned in Jersey at this point, though. Oh, yeah, exactly. They're still just a Jersey band. Okay. And um, But um, I loved them right from the start, though, and they're still a great band. I love their stuff. Oh, yeah. And it was you know, I did a street poster for them, and then I did something for um, – um, there was a bunch of shows going on out at Coney Island. I did a bunch of posters out there for – there's a few bands like uh, Codeine, oh, great band. God, I, I remember Codeine, yeah. Oh, yeah, great band. And then um, when I quit playing with Dee Dee, um, then I started doing uh, posters for a bunch of the Matador bands and uh, stuff like that. So I wind up doing some um, graphics for Unsane. And th it wasn't anything that they asked for specifically, but it would be for, you know, different venues. Okay. And then, you know, Ministry, I got that gig through a venue some of them were through venues. Uh, Negative Land called directly. The residents, of course, called directly. Claypool called directly. A lot of them called directly. Um, but um, some of them were through the through the clubs. Now, the King Crimson poster, that was my first one I ever did. That was the first screen-printed poster I ever did. Oh, I wow. learned how to do screen color saps by doing that because they said, can you, was, uh, I think it was the... Uh, that uh, the rock museum, whatever it's called out in Cleveland, I think had me do that. No, no, it wasn't them. It was some Cleveland show though. Okay. And they said, you know how to separate for screen print? And I said, yeah, <laughs> for screen print. I've yeah. been doing that my whole life. Yeah. yeah. Cause I'm a, cause I'm a liar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I took that gig lying my way into that, learned how to do it. You know, but years later, um, and I'm a gigantic King Crimson fan. Yes, me too. And, and later in the day, um, I would get a very uh, upsetting email <laughs> uh -oh. from a trip's assistant. 
And he said, look, we're shutting down people with all these King Crimson posters because that age of posters when it was big, you know, uh, whenever that was, late 90s, too many posters were out there. And he didn't like that people were reprinting them and every, and there were graphics he wasn't approving of. And I don't blame him. Yeah. And And I said, look, I only have like 20 left. And he goes, oh, okay, Robert said that's fine. And, and I said, look, and here's that attitude again, the never give up attitude. I said, look, I'm going to send you a high-res version of my poster so you have it. Sure enough, he said, Robert likes it and said that he might want to use it in the upcoming book that he's working on. Oh, so wow. the, I tried to turn some lemonade out of lemons with that because I was heartbroken. You don't want to upset people whose work you like that much, you know? Exactly, exactly. I know that, that wasn't bootlegging. I would never bootleg. No, no. Know? Right, right. And, and like you said, you know, you were actually contacted to do this. It wasn't something that you just decided to do and, and sell and make money off off of their names. So. Right, right. Yeah, no, this was, you know, it was through the club, whatever, but you're happy to do it and you hope the band sees it and you hope the band likes it. Yeah. You know. So now you mentioned playing drums with Didi Ramon. How did you start playing music? Was it something that you picked up? You were you started as a child and, and just kept going before you decided not to play drums anymore and then decided to play drums again? I started at nine. Okay. Um, my Pete was in front of me in, in line. I think we were in fourth grade. And, um, I was like, and, uh, I was like, I'm going to take guitar, I guess. And he goes, Oh, they don't have guitar. And I go, they don't. And he goes, no. And he goes, I'm going to take drums. I go, you can take drums. <laughs> and I was very excited. And I still see Pete and I said, thanks. Pete. I'm glad you were in line in front of me that day, you know, because yeah. I probably would have turned, cause I didn't realize you could take drums, you know? Yeah. And uh, I took it very seriously from the get go. And it was like, I was into Prague at a really young age. So it was like, like most things that I got to a lot of good things in my life, art and music were from old heads. People don't use that term anymore, but you know what I mean by that, right? Like an old kind of hippie type. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like wanting to blow your mind. And like, you know, it was, there was an older guy up the streets on the head, you know, with, yeah, you know, with a, with a, you know, a marijuana leaf t-shirt on probably recommending it. (laughs) Something tie dyed. Yeah, and he's like, he goes, you're listening to kind of some crazy, complex stuff. He goes, you want to hear some really complex stuff? And he turned me on to Return to Forever when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Wow. And it was the Romantic Warrior album with the worst title for a record ever. <laughs> Romantic Warrior. And yeah. the worst graphic on the front. Oh, my God, it's horrible. But it appealed to you as a 12 year old seeing a knight in armor, you know, but yeah. that is one of the great fusion albums. I mean, that record, I still have not worn that record out. It wow. just, it's just mine. But you know, and then another time this, uh, uh this older, another older, uh, head type, um, said, you don't know beef heart. And I said, uh, no. And he goes, sit down. He goes, I'm, <laughs> You're going to want to get up and you're going to want to leave the room, but I'm going to make you listen to Doc at the Radar Station, and then you're going to take a break, and then we're going to listen to Trout Mask Replica. Changed my life. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, they, like things like that. You know, it seemed like it was always 
older guys at like, you know, bookstores and stuff that are going, if you like this, you really like this. I think kids miss on that nowadays because you're shopping online and things yeah. are being recommended to you. But, you know, of all the things, you know, I mean, you know, someone recommended a King Crimson record to me, you know, older guy at a record shop. Yeah. Someone and you know, someone recommended Yes to me. And through that, I got into Roger Dean, you know, and it's like, I don't know, I owe a lot of the direction of my life to like older potheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you come down to it. I never thought about it that way, but it's kind of. <laughs> well, it's funny that, that that's, I got, uh, I got into Crimson it, almost in a similar way, but not necessarily with an older head, but with, uh, my, my buddy's Ed, his aunt used to work for Gem Records and she had all kinds of promo stuff and a bunch of it was King Crimson stuff. And she would give him the, all these records that she had like five copies of already because they were at the warehouse and they were promos that never got sent out 20 years ago and they're cleaning out some corner of a warehouse. And so there's, you know, uh, five copies of Crimson's Lizard. So she's like, here, here's a couple of copies. So he'd get one and then he'd give one to me. And then I started listening to it and I, I'm, I will take music that's given to me and I will listen to it. I'm not, if somebody gives me music, that means something to me. It means you thought enough of it to hand it off to me. And so that's old school. Yeah. And yeah. so I would definitely give it a shot and, and listen to the entire thing multiple times, even if I don't like it the first time or two. I got to see if it grows on me because there's a reason you gave it to me. There's a reason you introduced it to me. So there's, I'm, I'm going to find that some, at least even if I end up not liking it, there's going to be some nugget in there that I'm going to latch on to. So music wasn't free then either. No. It's like now you recommend records to people and people are like, Oh, well, which Coltrane record should I try? And I'm like, I'm not going to recommend it to you. Recommend record to you like that. And, and I know that sounds uppity to people, you know, they go, Oh, Mr. Jazzbo won't recommend. I go, it's because you're not going to get it right away. And I didn't get it right away either. I'm not going to recommend Africa brass to you or Ohm or, you know, these things, cause you're going to scrub through it yeah. and you're going to be done with it. And you're going to make a decision in 40 seconds, whether John Coltrane is good, not good or not. Yep. That, the, yep. You know, it, it's not worth it. If I recommend something like have them beef heart. No, you're not. I'm not going to let you scrub through trout mask. The idea of you scrubbing through it with your windows player makes makes me like actually irritates me. It, may, it puts me on edge. Like those are things that you have to spend time with and yeah. like, you know, to be able to comprehend. And that's part of the beauty of it. It's so complex. You can't wear it out, but you can't sell that someone, you know, no. at the snap finger but like you were saying before um my my father when i was uh when when i was uh, i think i was probably uh probably nine or ten and um he said to one of his friends he said hey is there any records my son should have do you have any records that you recommend and he said well i'll give him a few of mine so he gave me for um just just as a gift he gave me the first santana record with the Lee Conklin drawing of the um, of the lion, lion on it, yeah. Who's Who's next by the Who and um, Alice Cooper Killer? Oh wow! When I was at that age, right? Jeez. <laughs> I knew I didn't couldn't comprehend much of it. Alice Cooper was the easiest to comprehend because it was kind of a little bit scary in the whole bit. So I was drawn yeah. to that, but that Santana cover. 
that's what started me drawing in ink. Oh, wow. Once again, an older, well, not a head. He was a friend of my father's. <laughs> <laughs> I just drank some beer on the weekend. He, was, yeah. he may have been somebody, to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, if he had those records, maybe, right? Yeah. He was, a, you know, just a older Italian dude from the north side of Syracuse, you know, or wherever he was from. But um, I, I talked to uh, Lee Conklin on the phone uh, years later, and I walked away thinking he was a jerk <laughs> because I told him, and he's not. Let me finish the story. <laughs> I, I called him, and I was so thrilled to talk to him because, I mean, I started, I was sitting there as a kid, and then I noticed that the eyeballs, the pupils, were made out of screaming women's faces and that there were faces hidden in the nose and and, and the effect that had on me as a kid was intense. Yeah. 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 And it, and I started, I was like, dad, how do I do this? And my dad was thrilled because that's a crow quill you use. Cause my dad wanted to be an artist. He would draw in front of me just hoping that I would latch onto it a little bit. Wow. And, um, it worked. So if I would say (laughs) something like dad, what's oil painting? We'd be in the car driving to an art store. That's, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't push it, but you would just be like, here's oil paint, you know? And, um, so I talked to Lee and I said, well, Lee, look, you're responsible for the, the turn my life took because of it. And he goes, well, I guess you're welcome, I guess. And I thought, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then a week later I go, what the hell else was he going to say? You know, yeah. he's a very Guy. He's a very sweet guy. And it was just like, you know, I go, you could have said something else. What do you need to say when someone says, you changed my life? What, yeah. what, what's he going to do, you know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, there's only a couple ways a you can answer that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, my cut's 10%. I mean, I, you know, there's exactly not a whole lot of different ways to answer that, I guess. Uh, nobody's no. ever said that to me. So I'm not, I'm not sure how I would answer that. Yeah, yeah. What would you say? You know, I mean, I get thrilled enough when people say, you know, people say like, oh, my dad had your stuff on the wall when I was a kid and then he gave it to me and I've had a couple of your prints on my wall. There's nothing more thrilling than that. And tell you the truth, what you said before, when you said that you didn't really know my name, but you knew my art, yes. that's thrilling. I, it's not a, you know, I, I like that you recognize it. That's more important than the reading the bottom right hand corner and seeing that I scribbled my last name on, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, that's thrilling. You want to hear a, a funny story real quick. I'm here. Sure. To, I'm usually here to get funny stories from you guys from the people I interview, but I've, I've got one for you. Um, okay. Some of your work was on the set for the show workaholics. Yeah. Now, I'm a latecomer to Workaholics. I haven't even really seen the show, but I do another podcast. It's all, it's it's 90% comedy and like 10% sports. And the producer, uh, the uh, one, my, one of my co-hosts is a guy named Tommy Caprio, and he was a producer for Workaholics. So there's a just a little vague connection there. Oh, really? Oh, so you, you had a connection there. My connection to it was uh, Kelsey uh, Fowler, and she's had me give her stuff for a whole bunch of movies and everything, and uh, she's gotten me into a few other movies. I can't remember the names right off. There was another TV show I was on. Why am I forgetting what it was? I've completely forgotten what it was. Oh, no. But I know they used the ministry poster in, in uh, Workaholics. Oh, the ministry. 
poster. I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm late catching up with it because he he actually produces uh, Jim Jeffries' show on Comedy Central now. So I haven't had it. And, oh, cool! And we do a, a podcast every week, and so I just haven't had time to go and look back at some of this that the stuff he's done. We've been doing this other show for a, over a year now. So, but um, it's funny you mentioned ministry. I I saw ministry back in like '92, and that was the loudest show that I have ever been to. And they were outdoors. It was on the Lollapalooza tour, and it was that's the only show that I've ever been to where I actually held my ears. And we were at, we were we were outdoors, so that's how loud they were. <laughs> was, oh man, it was insane. And that's the, they did some great stuff. That the mind is a terrible thing to taste. Yeah, that's yeah. That, it was about that's that a, time. That's a great album. Yeah, yeah. I still think they have one of, for the type of band they are. I think they have the best record title of all time: "Dark Side of the Spoon." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that is a clever, awesome. <laughs> I for that genre of music and the way Al has led his life, that is a real. I think that's like a, like the perfect that, uh, <laughs> album title. That yeah, that I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So, right, so now you've you've been in a several bands yourself, um, Drunk Tank. Uh, you were in Sprockets with uh, Didi Ramone's Sprocket, um, and yep. you've done some of your your other, you know, your solo work with uh, Atlantic Drone. Which I've been listening to lately, and it is amazing. I am so annoyed with myself that it's taken me this long to find it. That uh, first album you, you did is incredible. I was listening to it over and over today. Oh, thanks. The second one is on LP only. We had some trouble with the label getting it into distribution and everything, but I'm going to get it digitally uh, distributed soon, like a real official uh, digital distribution on that. Oh, and then the awesome. wh- what happened was it was the the um, distributor talked me into using my name as the name of the band because he said, you've been selling your name as an artist for 30 years, but you know, I don't tour any of this music or anything. I don't do it professionally anymore. So I, you know, um, so, so I, how did I lose complete track of thought in the middle of a simple sentence? I do it all the time. Maybe I'm I'm one of the old heads given wisdom now, but I don't (laughs) need those. (laughs) Um, how did I completely lose track of thought? What was I even talking about? Oh, I just, I had mentioned how much I enjoyed Atlantic drone. And you said that, uh, the, the second oh, album okay. was working on a distribution for that. Yeah. They said to start using my own name. And when I did do that, the, the stuff started selling a little bit better just because there was just a little bit of recognition on my name as an artist, you know, cause I've been pushed myself as being, you know, a professional musician in a long time. Yeah. I gave that up after the Matador days. I was on some other band and Matador too, that, idea I didn't want to talk about because right. it was just embarrassing. The work I did with them, I liked, but it just got to the point with it that it was embarrassing. I mean, at one point, um, right when I decided to leave, we were doing some radio interview and we were up at uh, um, some station up at NYU. I can't remember the name of their station there. And I was being nice to the girl 
you know, uh, working there for different reasons. She was adorable. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason. I wasn't trying to to pick her up or anything, but she was adorable. And we had a room full of records and she gave me, you know, a bunch of like, I got like the fall live. They had a bunch of the fall albums up there to grab. And they got really mad at me afterwards. And they actually sat me down and told me this verbatim. If you want to get started, you want to start getting treated like a rock star you better start acting like one. What? And and I turned to them and I said, I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be playing with you. Oh, wow. It it was one of those things too, where when I got to that New York scene where the dust devils and I hit it off because the dust devils were really great musicians. All of them really play. And there was a prog element to it. And I came from, you know, learning yes songs when I was a kid and, you know, figuring out Bill Bruford's drum parts. So I liked all of that. But then I was, but when I got to New York, I was into like the freeform scene, like William Parker and stuff. And, you know, Jesus Lizard was still a young band then. I was very into Jesus Lizard and also, you know, kind of challenging, you know, the time signatures. And I just think that band's genius. And, you know, they were all about, there was kind of like the part of the the scene there was very into, I think it was a lot of people that didn't really grow up playing instruments. So they had a love for very simple, easy to play music because I think for them knowing they could play a, a track by the fall, which is in no way not complex, but right, to play right, a guitar yeah. part of the fall, you learn the riff and you play the riff for the entire song. There's hardly any changes. It's part of the what makes it to me so psychedelic and also so punk rock at the same time. I love the fall yeah. to this day. But, you know, they loved like everyone. It seemed like there was a rule that you had to love um, the Stones, Exile, and Main Street, which I find unlistenable. I always have. And it was almost like there were it, it, this punk rock ethic where it was this back to basics thing. And I just couldn't fit in with that. Even when I was doing demos with uh, Didi, the, I remember the producer yelling at me and going, what the F are you playing? Uh, what do you listen to? And I remember going, well, I've been listening to a lot of Scratch Acid lately and William Parker. And he goes, what <laughs> is any of that he goes where did that drum fill come from and i go what's wrong with an interesting drum fill and i realized i was too defiant at that age you know there i am like 22 23 i'm getting a chance to show you that i can mess with time signatures (laughs) it wasn't the place for it it wasn't the place for it but that other manator band it was like i went into it i wanted to be i never wanted to be a career musician i was never i never wanted the the, the cheap girl in the bar. I never wanted to, you know, I, I was never into drugs. I was, I, I even quit drinking at 22. I just got bored with it. So it was like after shows, I would go into the van and I would have books with me that I brought on tour and I would sleep with the equipment every night, like, a, <laughs> you know, like, like a Wolverine there, protect the equipment. And, you know, I'm I'm in the, I'm in the van at night while they're partying and I'm in the van, like trying to wrap my head around Coltrane and playing Frippinino to go to sleep. And, you know, and I'm reading books out there by flashlight, you know? Yeah. And, and it just wasn't my world, you know, but you know, 
it's funny though there were so many scenes then in new york and never the twain shall meet with a lot of it like the main scene most of us were all in matador bands so you know we were always hanging around with um i would always be somewhere with like cop shoot cop or um or with um um, dust devils um unsane were friends so it was always that kind of group and um you you know great bands yeah yeah. (laughs) on top of it my god i mean i you know before i started playing at matador i was already going to dust devil shows all the time they were just mind-blowing but it, there was a scene there, and at the same time, you had soul coughing was happening too. But it wasn't happening with us. Like I knew mm. Mike Doty just because he was the um, doorman at um, New York Press, where I used to do illustrations for. And we never became friends or anything. But I would look at him and go, "Why does that guy look so familiar?" Years <laughs> later, and I realized he was the guy up at New York Press, and he's one of the only. Tell you the truth, he's one of the only songwriters I follow now. He's, okay. I just think he's an incredible songwriter. Yeah, he was formerly with Soul Coughing. But we would never run into Soul Coughing. They had a hip-hop thing going, and we were yeah. more into the uber-aggression and you know um, stuff. And then there were a few other bands that were really good. They were on um, – um, they were all working with, with Kramer's label. They were on um, um, Shimmy Disc. And there were some great bands there like Fly Ashtray, Uncle Wiggly. And, but the thing was, it was like everyone had, everything was centralized though in New York back then. Everything was in the Lower East Side. Okay. And now it's not. Like everyone wants to promote their own neighborhood in Brooklyn and no one admits to living in Queens. As far as I know, no one lives in Queens. (laughs) I remember people back in the day actually saying things like, Oh, you live in Queens? Do you mean Long Island? Because back then, it was cool, only cool to live in Manhattan. Right. I remember an art director said to me, whoa, an art director doesn't live in Brooklyn or Queens. I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. You want to pay times more? I go, and how long is it going to take you to get home? They're like, about a half hour. I go, it's going to take me about 35, 40 minutes. Big friggin' deal. Yeah. But the scene back then was so united. Like you'd walk into like Max Fish was new back then. Had a great jukebox. They had Husker Du on the jukebox. And And if you came in with a single, they'd put it on for you. It was just a great Lower East Side neighborhood bar. And anytime a Matador band was in town, they'd come there and hang out. I remember one time there was an article in the New York press and it said, and the new bar, um, Max fish go there and, and stand in line in the bathroom. And, and while you're there waiting, meet 15 or 20 different people from Madden. Fans. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, and, uh, uh, Mark Eibold was in Dust Devils back then. And he went, he quit, he left Dust Devils and went on to play with uh, Sonic youth and, um, um, pavement. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's, to my next little story and this is not saying i'm not saying anything bad about pavement here it's just that won't we were you know i was sitting with the bass player from drunk tank uh, julian mills that band was really his that was his um brainchild he started that band in chicago guy really had a vision for what he wanted to do And um, what I added to to his vision was, how about we make the whole heavy record 
feel like a swing album. So the whole thing has swing feels to it, but I'm playing incredibly violently. But when you come down to it, it's all based on like swing tunes. So every time there's a break, I'm going, it was like a joke. No one picked up on it. But anyway, I was sitting with Julian before a show and we were, it was some big show and it was being filmed and it was a bunch of bands playing. And um, there was these two kids. I'll never forget this. <laughs> They're sitting next to us and um, pavement was playing. I had just played, I think at CB's the day before. And the kid said to the other one, he goes, have you heard pavement yet? And the other kid goes, goes, uh, yeah, man, I'm totally into it. I'm totally into it. I was at the show last night. And the kid goes, he goes, thank God they came around. I was sick of pretending I was into cop shoot cop. Oh, wow. And I was just like that really like both of us, just our stomachs. And it's no offense to pavement or anything. It's just that there was a sense of, I hate using the word, but avant-garde is a good way to, to say it. There was a good sense of avant-garde, of the avant-garde then. Everyone was going in different directions. I mean, they were calling what most of the, the scene I was in, the noise scene, right? Well, when we got there, who was running that town, it was Sonic Youth, Swans, Jim Thurwell, Cop Shoot Cop. It was very heavy stuff, yeah. very complex, very heavy stuff. And it was like, you know, um, even on my kit, I had pieces of like garbage and stuff that I would use for percussion instruments and stuff. And we just felt like there was something interesting going on. And I liked it because being into weird time signatures and stuff, I was in love with it. And they were, it, it was just shitting on what I thought was the great thing about what was going on in the New York scene. And even alternative music in general, Jesus Lizard was going strong at that time. Yeah. Even when they played, when they were playing CBs, they couldn't play under um, the name Jesus Lizard. They had to play under the name Led Zeus shit jar. They, they switched the, I'm sure Yao was responsible for that. <laughs> yeah. Switched the letters. So you could do it. And, uh, Julian literally, um, he, he goes, I'm going to wait to wait till I see pavement and then I'm going to see whether we're going to keep the band together. Cause it was his band technically. Okay. And he waited and saw pavement again. And he said he walked into the room and the audience was swaying back and forth. And he walked out, he called me from a phone right in front of CB's and he goes, we're done. We're oh, done. Oh, wow. And he goes, it's over. He goes, it's over. And it was. It was. It was over. It, everyone was reminded again. And once again, I'm not picking on pavement. I'm really not. Mark's a sweet guy. Last thing I want to do was be, be feel like I was saying something nasty about him. Uh, but it, it was just, I tell you the truth, I've only heard maybe three songs by them. So I don't even have an opinion about them. It, it, it was just that everyone found straight rock and roll. And, and I was hoping that it was dead and gone, to tell you the truth. I was hoping that straight rock and roll was dead and gone. I, I just, I've never really, I know it's a horrible thing to say. I never really liked rock and roll. I mean, the only okay. like rock and roll band I listened to is probably replacements, sometimes some cramps and like MC5 and Stooges. I don't really like straight rock and roll. People whining and writing bad lyrics is pretty much what it. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it is to me. The only songwriters I even follow nowadays are Kristen Hirsch, Mike Doty, and uh, I don't know, maybe a couple more. Robin Hitchcock. Oh, you yeah. know, 
It's like, I don't know. I kind of lost faith in it. I lost faith in, I love music. I don't really like songs. I don't think I ever liked songs. Even as a kid, I was drawn more to when the levee breaks than I was the black dog. I wanted the long song oh. that I could get lost in. I mean, it's all just my personal, Yeah, you know, I feel to say that it's just my personal take on it but just to me i wanted to, i like to get lost in stuff i like to not know where i am yeah and that, i know exactly what you're saying it, it I, I i get drawn more towards the sound in any given song that what like you're saying uh when the levee breaks the whole it's more than just the four instruments is playing it it creates this enormous atmosphere which is one of the things that I loved about listening to Atlantic Drones, especially uh, Little Miss Expanding Universe, which is a great track. First of all, it's a fantastic, awesome title. <laughs> but the song, it, there's just so many different elements. You've, you've got that, the jazz drumming going, and it, but then you've got this psychedelic surf slide guitar thing going. And it, it just, it, it's, uh, it was really That's, uh, amazing. Dave, that's Dave Rick from uh, Dave Rick, okay. a buddy of mine. He played with um, Ball, Phantom Tollbooth, Bong Water, Yola Tango. Oh, Yola um, Tango's great. Probably missing five bands that he was in. Dave, when I talked to him about like bad situations I was in and bands, he always, the first thing he always says, and it's the truth, he goes, your problem was you never joined the band with your friends. You never made, made a band with your friends, you know? Uh, you know, Julian, I did be Julian and I from drunk thing did become friends and all that, but it wasn't starting a band with your friends okay. and the other Matador band I was in, it, it, it was definitely not friends. Everything was just about, Oh, I'm going to make some money to wear leather pants and I'm going to be famous and I want my picture on this. And when we referred to each other, uh, say our first and last names every time. And then when I left the band, they did the most despicable thing in the world, which I think is the most, oh, it's so hideous. Uh -oh. To try to sell out is worse than selling out. To, it's like yeah. to try to sell out and no one's buying. Talk about just wrecking the memory of the band. And then, you know what, to younger songwriters out there, when your drummer leaves the band eventually, like I did the day before a tour and the day before recording, <laughs> <laughs> Don't write songs about him because it's friggin' flattering. Okay? <laughs> some news. It's flattering that you're up at night being angry that your drummer left, that you're talking about how unimportant he was, but you're writing songs about him every week. Uh, you know what I mean? Yep. Almost love of you. I loved hearing that they hated me. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's great. I'm going to go on. And actually, you know, I wanted to play and do something that was crazy. I was hoping with all these bands, it would get crazier and crazier till it evolved into some weird, you know, a, a giant, you know, crazed trout mask replica album. And then we realized we couldn't sell music because what we were doing was too crazy and the band would break up. <laughs> That's a beautiful thought to me. Yes. I like that. I did the idea of, I'm going to be able to buy a fur coat and a Cadillac. Never <laughs> crossed my mind. I remember when I was started playing with Dee Dee, the original guitarist was supposed to be Richie Stotts, and Cheetah Chrome was actually talking about playing in the band, too. Oh, wow. So it was pretty, it was pretty thrilling. You know, Dee Dee would show up to practice with Dave Vanian, would be from the Damned, would be standing wow. next. You know, Jeez. and you got to remember, 
Sid Vicious idolized Dee Dee. That's where he got the whole leather jacket wearing thing and the whole bit. People think it's vice versa. But it was like they were not – I'm not sure about Cheetah, but I, I, if I remember correctly, I might be wrong. I think the other guitarists, there was a chance that they were real worried that Dee Dee was going to go back onto some of the – back to some of the problems that he was having yeah. uh, before with the Ramones. Um, which I hope he never did, but, um, I quit before I found out, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but, uh, with, uh, yeah, but with, uh, Didi, um, I lost track again. I haven't, I've never talked about this so much. So (laughs) it's all coming out out at the same time. Um, but, um, one of the, one of, uh, I mean, cut for editing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm back. Um, the uh, one of the labels, well, a few of them, they would have this catchphrase they would say to you, and they would said to me, "I was out to dinner with their giving buying me and Dee Dee and the guitar and the and the guitarist and the vocalist. They're buying us fancy dinners and taking us to shows, and they would all say to you one at a time, don't you worry about anything.'" I'm going to get rich and I'm going to make you famous. And I remember saying to every one of them, how about I make some money and you become famous? I actually would say that to them. You know, I wanted to make a living. I didn't give a shit about being recognized at a bar at 3 a.m. and getting, you know, and having some drunk girl recognize me and have sex with me in the back of the bar while we, you know, shared a heroin needle. That really wasn't my idea of, of, I'm not, you're not you know, into that. You're not into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I wanted to uh, get get home and get home and read. <laughs> but uh, put on some Jim Henson and go to sleep. A, I'm not any fun, Mark. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but it was like I always said, I wasn't cool enough to have a drug habit. I used yeah. to say, you know, I was cool enough, and I knew I wasn't cool enough, to, you know, and. But uh, I would say that to them, I don't, you know, and it was a weird thing, though, like they would come in and they would tell you how they wanted you to cut your hair and all of that, because we were talking to some majors, we were talking to Warner Brothers, and they were going to get all a really big advance, and uh, it fell through, and because Dee Dee called up and said, I don't need you, we're going to go with Metal Blade, and I was like, I am leaving. I just packed up my stuff and left, (laughs) and then Dee Dee quit after I did. And then um, one night before that, we were all sitting around and Pixies Doolittle had just came out. Oh, and we man. were just in love with Pixies. It was a great album. Oh, yeah. And we, we were in love with that record. And we were like, man, they're supposed to be playing the Ritz. So Dee gets on the phone and goes, goes, hello, can I talk to whoever? And he says, this is Dee Dee Ramone. And there's silence for a second. And then he goes, yeah, we'd like to open up for the Pixies. That was it. We were playing the Ritz. Opening wow. for the Pixies. Now, remember, this is pre-manager bands and everything. I haven't played a show, you know, at that point outside of central New York, you know. Oh and all of a sudden we're playing the Ritz. I quit before the Ritz show. So they got a replacement bass player because they still wanted to play the show. And then they rented me a drum kit and I came and did the show. Oh, I wow. was such a, I was still disliked that rock lifestyle and what happened in that band so much them with all their fake names like everyone had these fake rock star names and everything and i, I just even Dee wanted me to change my name to steve serious at one point 
my gosh. <laughs> and oh. I was like, I'm not using a stage name. I'm not doing this. You know, it was yeah. just embarrassing to me. I should have played along maybe, but I just didn't want to, you know. I had, it's not you. It's not you, man. Uh, I was I was worrying about you know finding a you know finding a new Coltrane record to listen to. I was yeah. too geeky for that, <laughs> and so so um, uh, uh, I showed up at the show and they opened up the curtains and I was not nervous. I don't know why, but then there was a giant horsefly, like a beer or, or just a big fly. There's probably no horseflies in New York City, but it was flying around me. And I'm swatting at it while I'm playing. And they're like, what are you doing? I go, there's a fly. And I'm in the rip playing with them. And people are looking going, that doesn't look like Dee Dee Ramone looking at the bass player, you know? Yeah. He had heard the songs. I only knew two of the songs. They go, you can get through them. Don't worry about it. So I showed up and improvised my way through a set. And there was someone in the front row that later approached me, he recognized me from Psychedelic Solution, because I was still working there. And he approached me and he goes, are you swatting at a fly during that show? <laughs> or just some, like, some pretty sweet drum moves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it must have looked bizarre. I just did not care, and I was hoping I would make a mistake. I didn't want to do it intentionally, but I was just like, I had just had it, Mark. I'd had it with the whole rock thing me and one of your former guests mark dancy we talk about that about that kind of stuff a lot how we had both just had enough yeah. you know just had enough and you know mark was right alongside me he was illustrating for the same magazines as me he was playing in a band uh, he was in big chief then and they would have a spot in the same magazines that that the bands i was in were were having spots in and then years later i met him and I was like, I was like, oh, geez, you know, there's Mark Dancy. He was in Detroit. And I went up to, walked up to say hello to him. And he goes, he goes, Steve Serio. And I go, Mark Dancy. And he shook my hand and he goes, he goes, I got to go and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and once again, I'm like, what an asshole. <laughs> He's like, He's denying me <laughs> pleasure of me and meeting my, take meeting me, you know, of my company. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just walked away and it turns out that what happened was because i walked up to the gallery owner i thought you said dancy was a cool guy and uh <laughs> it turned out that right at the moment that i said hello to him the girl that he had just broken up with that night showed up at my opening oh. it was actually a show with me and the residents it was the, the art of steven serial and the residents okay. at the original c-pop gallery in detroit and she had showed up right at that moment but mark and i like to share a lot of stories our favorite one is um he loves this and he has never let me let it down but i say the same i, I use the same term against him some guy showed up at, at cb's one night and he knew me as an artist but he knew that i was in these bands so he thought I was like a representative of artists that were also musicians, right? <laughs> he had some diluted <laughs> thing. Okay. So he shows through the entire show. He's drinking more and more, and he keeps yelling it so loud it's going into the PA, and he's going, Steve Serio, cartoon rocker. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he would show up at the pyramid and do it. He'd show up at CBs and do it. He'd show up at the Ritz and do it. He'd be at all the bigger clubs in New York, and he'd be there going, cartoon rocker, in the background. And I told Mark. So to this, so it's been like 20-something years, and Mark and I just go, and like when we call, we go, cartoon rocker, are you there? Yeah. <laughs> a cartoon rocker, too. And then we go and find embarrassing photos of each other when we had full heads of hair when we were in these bands and we email them to each other and stuff. And he goes, Oh, I got something you'd really like to see. And and then he opens up and it's a picture of him with a big full head of curly hair. <laughs> <laughs> I go, that's you cartoon rocker. Oh my God. That's <laughs> you know, awesome. And I have been great in a band together. Yeah. Because he's... we would have both been fighting over reading books in the van. <laughs> <laughs> If you guys do get together, I definitely have to hear that because that would be amazing. I've almost convinced him. He's got this this beautiful Gibson, and he's so in rege- into rejecting the fact of like playing music that he keeps it in his basement, oh, like it's rusty. And they oh, go, "Why don't no. you just sell it then? It's a Gibson, you know, and it's yeah. from I think I'm sure it's not worth twenty grand, but it's still a Gibson Les Paul, you know. Yeah. It's got to be worth." And, and I was like, I've, I'm, I'm really close to getting them to put new strings on it and playing on one of the records. Oh, that'd you know? be awesome. That would be yeah. amazing. You mentioned something to me while we were getting the logistics squared away for this show about, um, and if I remember it right, Thanksgiving with Rob Zombie. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when I was playing with Didi. We, we were like... Um, uh, someone said, are you going home for Thanksgiving? And I said, no, it was someone in the band. And I said, no, I'll, um, what's going on? It's like, well, Dee's not, you know, going anywhere. And we were going to get together. And I can't remember whose apartment it was. And I showed up and it was uh, Rob Zombie was there. And um, the original incarnation of White Zombie before they really took off. Okay. And uh, Jay, um, when they had Jay, great guitarist, oh, and yeah. Sean. She's she's incredible. She was a great. She was a sweetheart too. I used to bump her into the street, and we would just talk for like two hours, standing in the middle of the sidewalk. Oh, she would man. just tell nice, great stories about growing up in Florida and people painting the stones in their front yards. And yeah, twenty you remember. Yeah, but we had a blast. I mean, Rob wasn't too much fun. He just sat in the corner the whole time and cried <laughs> people. But whatever. <laughs> that was. What, but uh, it was just funny. Like I'm sitting here and. and uh, you know, they weren't really, you know, um, rock stars then or anything. So that wasn't so strange, but just having Thanksgiving with Dee Dee and like, you know, I like, I actually like tried to get the last drumstick and, you know, and Dee Dee wanted it. And I was like, what a strange Thanksgiving, you know? And all we just, just talked about punk rock the whole time. And I remember Rob like correcting Dee Dee on things. And I was like, Oh, oh. dude, Didi. If Didi says the world, the world is a you know is a giant puppet head full of uh, full of uh, sweet tarts, you just agree with it, Didi. <laughs> you know? yeah. Living embodiment of everything we're doing, you know. It's yeah. just like let it happen. Let his slightly incorrect year 
and when Rocket of Russia came out yeah. to fly, don't go correcting him on Ramon's history, you know? It was a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> it was funny back then, like still to this day. I remember people, like some guy, he used to come in all the time, and he was one of those older heads again. He'd come and he'd go, oh, dude, you got to check out this album. And then he'd be like, when are you going to bring your band in? And I'm going to record you guys. And I'd be like, I don't know, Drunken Stone Jerry, because he'd <laughs> Years later, watching Ramones, uh, and this is once again before I played with Didi, and uh, um, I'm watching a Ramones film, and there's Jerry in it, and oh. he turns out he was one of their producers. <laughs> and I'm, oh just, I'm forgetting that everyone I met was friggin' famous. I'd be, I'd be sitting at that counter. I'm talking to this guy and I'm thinking, man, why does this guy seem familiar to me? And I realized I was talking to Jack Bruce. Oh, wow. Yeah, really nice guy. Man. And then another English guy came in. I hit it off with him. We're shooting the shit. We're going through posters together. And he pointed and he goes, I remember this show. And I go, oh, you saw the animals? And he turns and looks at me and he reaches out his <laughs> hand. He goes, oh, my Eric Burden. Oh, my God. It's so trippy to move from like a small suburban neighborhood to like meeting Andy Warhol's friend and having him try to pick you up on the street at 3 a.m. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and like, John Giorno was trying to get some alone time with me. I'm a John Giorno fan. I was telling a friend that I go, he wouldn't let go of my hand. He goes, want to come upstairs? And I was like, no, I do not. Um, someone one of my friends said, do you know how much better that story would have been if you went up there and had sex with John Giorno? <laughs> I don't know if I want to live that story. Oh, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't want to that. Yeah, that's not worth the story right yeah. there. And there he was. I was 22. God knows what he would have done to me. Oh, you know? my God. <laughs> yeah, intent on getting this, you know, 22-year-old kid up to his place, you know. And the place he was trying to get me up to was the bunker. And Bill Burroughs was still alive then. Oh, wow. Who knows? Bill Burroughs came up there, too, and I would have been in double trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, to, to have met Bill, I, I knew that there was this one magazine that came out, um, uh, Roro. It was called R-U-H-R-O-H, like uh, Scooby-Doo. Oh, Scooby okay. Yeah. It was a one-time only art mag. It was done by this guy, Mark Ewart. And... Uh, Mark has been in films since, and he has talked about being, you know, he was like the, like, kind of like the love of Bill Burroughs' life. And uh, he showed up, um, it would show up in New York, and he'd come over and we'd hang out. And one time, um, they were eating in a restaurant, and I wasn't dressed for it, and there was Burroughs standing like 15 or 20 feet from me. He was with Allen Ginsberg, oh. you know, and, you know. Alan's cool too. He ain't, you know, he ain't no Kerouac or Bill Burroughs, but he's cool. Right. But I would see him everywhere. He was in the village all the time. It was so common. I would just wave to him. I would see Alan Ginsberg. One time I was walking down the street and I'd go, I'm going to wave to Alan Ginsberg. Hi, Alan Ginsberg. And I go, wow, that was kind of weird. And, uh, and, but in New York, no one crowds people like that. No one yeah. go, you know, yells to people or crowds them. But, 
I said, Mark, please, I know I didn't get to meet Bill, but he's, you know, one of my idols. And I'm one of the few people that actually read all of his books. I don't just learn the surface history about accidentally shooting his wife and stuff. Right. I actually you know, read his work, and I still do. And he goes, oh, no, Bill really likes your work. He likes the cutouts. And he told me things that Bill liked about the work that I had oh, wow. um, in there. And I kept testing him to see if he was being sincere because I wanted to know that Bill really said those things. Yeah. And and I think they were because they did. They sound, you know, they, they sounded right. So that was a thrill, you know, to know that Bill Burke was even commented on the line I drew. It was a thrill. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and speaking of movies, you make uh, short films yourself. Now, how did you get into doing the short films? I woke up one day and I said, should I do films? And I thought, well, if I don't do films, that means I didn't do films. That was my logic. It was literally my logic. Because awesome. then I go, okay, I'm going to picture myself in the future now, two years in the future, have not done films. And I was like, what is that like? And I go, oh, I would say, huh, I never did any films. <laughs> today you decide to do films. Then tomorrow you can say, I started doing films. I go, that sounds a lot better. That sounds more fun to me. I was really my logic on it. That's amazing. And still using that, you know, DIY, you know, thing that I first saw with the residents and whatever. And, you know, the punk rock scene growing up as a kid, you know, the whole gorilla version of doing things. And I thought if anyone cares about it, I'll ask people if they'll put up money to get me a camera. That'll be a deciding factor and people gave me money on a Kickstarter thing to buy the equipment. Wow. So I've been doing films ever since. And the first person I asked to narrate, um, I don't really use acting. Actually, I don't use any acting. They're, they're very psychedelic films. And um, it's all using all nature shots in a very abstract way, blurred, and you can't recognize things. Yeah. And well, the whole, to give you just the gist of the, you know, the whole manifesto very quickly is, it's the idea of why do you need monsters? Why do you need all this stuff? Why can't it just be the strange shadow that was under some apple tree at 3 p.m. in your suburban neighborhood? Why can't, why with, isn't that? With the it? lawnmower in the background. Yeah, it's, yeah. I love why, that. Why isn't that good enough? You know, why isn't that good enough? You know, here isn't good enough. You know, it's like yeah. it has that it has that attitude to it, but it's not on the nose or anything. But I shot this thing and I had to teach myself to edit. And boy, I pay a lot. I'm a big film buff. And it was like, you know, I'm the kind of person that, you know, it's like I put on like, you know, Wells or Fellini and I'm actually writing notes, you know, yeah. even when I went through it. Because that might be something I could use in my art or whatever, you know, the way they frame. And I thought, I'm going to be a really good editor. So I jumped right in. Oh, my God. No, you need to learn some skills. <laughs> <laughs> and I was patient, though. I re-edited the first film that was called uh, The Magnificent Pigtail Shadow. I re-edited that. Oh, my God. I remember it was definitely over 100 times. Wow. 100 full. By then, I did know how to edit. Jeez. But I didn't want to put something out where the editing didn't work. And, you know, when I was learning a lot of things and, you know, um, I would ask little things from uh, um, a couple filmmakers that I knew. I still don't know many filmmakers, but uh, one would help me with some stuff was uh, Trent Harris helped me with a few questions. And then it turned out that I knew my friend's 
father was the cameraman for Trent. Trent did the movie Reuben and Ed. Okay. Um, it was with Crispin Glover. Amazing film if you haven't oh, seen yeah. it. Okay. It was one of those got it shelved too quick, but great filmmaker. And, you know, he answered a few questions for me. And these people were very into helping me out, just like in the early days, you know, with the art. And they, were, they helped me out and said, don't do this, don't do that. And it sounded right to me, and it was right. And he gave me good advice about how to approach things. But I, my dream was to have either Patsy Cline read it, <laughs> which is going to be hard. That's going, to be, going to be hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, the second one was Kristen Hirsch from um, Throwing Muses. Oh, I I love Kristen Hirsch. Oh, geez. She's, I you sh- if you hear the movie, it, her voice, speaking voice, is just as beautiful as her singing voice oh, really is. I have some of her earlier stuff, some of th- th- uh, Throwing Muses, and some of her first solo stuff. Um, her solo stuff's incredible. Yeah. It, it, I, for some reason, the name is uh, Hips and Makers. That, that I, I still love that oh, yeah. album. Oh, she's done great ones since that too. A lot of great ones. There's a lot of real incredible gems out there. My one of my favorite ones is a uh, Sky Motel. Okay. And uh, that one is incredible. It's a great psychedelic album. Oh, definitely she's just look a that out. Theorist. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for someone that turns a phrase well. You know, that really writes something and uses the right words, and you can tell they sweated over it. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. I, I had her, her husband was managing at the time, Billy, nice guy. And, um, he went out to eat while we were recording. And this was, we were in, uh, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. I met them at a studio there and it was where they recorded all the Muses records. It was called, um, was it called stables, stable studio. Okay. And, um, a great studio, great uh, engineer there, Steve. And, um, well, I recorded her there, right, where she had done all of the Throwing Muses records. And she was red hot right off of a book tour. So she was able to read, even though the writing I gave her was pretty wild. She was able to read. I think she made two mistakes. And it was like a good two-hour read. Cause, because what happened was is when Billy left, I said, I got another couple movies I'd like you to read for. It's <laughs> 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 Billy might say no. So she, uh, when he left, she read another two movies for me. So those are coming out soon. Oh, awesome. And then, and then I'd started using recently Laurie Amat. I just did two films with Laurie Amat. Laurie was one of the, um, might even be the earliest female voice on the Resonance albums. She was on God and Persons and uh, Hit the Road Jack. Okay. Incredible musician incredible voice i mean she's like you know she's practically an opera star wow she's just so fun to work with just so fun to work with and yeah i'm working on those now i'm trying to finish those up and those two are coming out in lp the way the way the reason why i have stuff to release like the magnificent pigtail shadow stuff came out on cd too it's because since i don't use actors i um i got the idea from fellini it's kind of the reverse what Fellini does, but I never thought that I'd be able to use anything Fellini did as influence because I thought it'd be too complex, whatever. But Eight okay. and a Half by Fellini, I'm obsessed with. That's probably my favorite film of all time. Oh, okay. And I, I can't get enough of that. That and Juliet of the Spirits. And I was I was reading an interview with him, and he, they were talking about, because I remember asking my dad this as a kid, because my dad turned me on to Fellini when I was a little kid. And it was an Italian pride thing. And uh, I don't remember what movie it was or anything, but I said, why aren't the words matching up? And he said, oh, because it's in Italian. And I said, 
but they're speaking Italian, you know? Yeah. And he goes, I said, but they're speaking Italian. He goes, you know what? That's a good point. Why isn't it matching up? Turns out it's because he, the reason how he was able to pull off such great direction was he would talk to the actors while they were working. So his voice is on the audio. So that's how when you see in like a, a scene that should be boring, like the scene where he's in the, uh, not a mental hospital, but it's more like a retreat kind of hospital where you rejuvenate yourself, some uh, spa, to, like a spa, okay. that scene at the beginning. The background, if you watch the people moving in the background, it's like a beautifully orchestrated, like it's beautiful. And it should just be a scene of him, you know, going, he's pretty much going, mama mia, I'm so sick of working on this movie. <laughs> but, in <the> background, <laughs> but in the background, there's this beautiful, like these people zigzagging down the hill, going in frame and out and just, and he's directing all that by going, no, you know, you number seven, move to the left. You stop right there. Turn a little bit towards the camera. You light them a little bit more. So he would make them go back in and redo all of their, 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 their acting, their, their, their vocal their lines. Yeah. Oh, wow. All of their lines. That's why it doesn't work. And I thought there's got to be something there that I can use. There's got to be some technique. And what I realized is, is I go, well, I don't have any acting, so I don't have to sync the music to actors. I will sync the movie to the music and the writing. Oh, so wow. I the writing and the music first, and then I edit the film to it. Oh, wow. Which works for me. That's amazing. That's fantastic. My stuff's very meditative. It's not, you know, of course, I'm not, I don't have anything where, you know, the hero wins at the end or a robot flies in outer space and blows up. Right. But, you know, but, but then um, the writing then is telling, is prescribing to me what needs to be shot. I don't illustrate the shots, but I'll be like, you know what? I'll if I take a shot of the sun here, zoom in, reverse it out so it's black, superimpose some texture over the top would be good for this part. And I'll just come up with abstract shapes and stuff that will work with it. And in some of them, like Pigtail Shadow, things are recognizable. But I won't go into that. It's all boring abstract talk. It's hard <laughs> to talk about abstract film while you're speaking. You know, it's better <laughs> off just looking. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. But feel, feel free to edit all that out. <laughs> it's actually a lot more interesting than you think. But, uh, well, I've kept you a, a long time here, and I just I want to ask you one more thing uh, before I let you go, and you can have the rest of your night. You don't have to sit here chattering away with me all night. But uh, oh, I'm enjoying. Oh well, I'm having a blast too. And what I want to know is. What is something that you're listening to lately that, and I, normally I, if when I ask this to somebody, I would ask what's something that I would find strange in your record collection that you're listening to. But I have a feeling that that would almost be a redundant question. So what is something that you recommend that I should listen to? Um, I would first, I would ask, what do you normally listen to? Uh, I'm a pretty, I've got a pretty wide taste. I, I, I like straight rock and roll, like, um, black rebel motorcycle club all up to like Led Zeppelin, but I'm a big fan of Prague also. Um, lately I've been actually listening to a guy named Andy Schaff. Um, I don't know them. Oh, you should check out Andy Schaff. He's really, he's a singer songwriter. Oh. 
and he's it's really his songs are are pretty intense. There's a live version of a song that he does called uh, Wendell Walker live at the Drake Hotel. I would definitely oh. think I definitely think you would like that. Um, listening to some Fever Ray. Um, oh, I love Fever Ray. Battles. I- my favorite video of all time, my two favorite videos, one was a, um, oh my God, why am I forgetting her name? Who's the girl from the Sugar Cubes with the one name? Oh, Bjork. Bjork. She did that one video with um, uh, Michelle Gondry, and it's for the song Human Behavior. Oh, yes. And, and, and at the end, they pull back, and they're on a tiny planet. That, and then the Fever Ray video, um, what's the one... Uh, What's the one where she sings like in a man voice Her voice is slowed down. Oh. It's on the first fever Ray album. Oh, I can't remember. And it, it, it's incredible. It's like it, without talking about it, it says, you know, in the lyric, it goes, this will never end, but I want more. Give me more. Give me more. And it's just like this drone tone, but she makes it so musical. And the video insinuates like that. It's like this, the white man lives in this big mansion and the white man has decorated his house with metal sculptures of animals and the heads of animals are on the walls. And it's, it comes across almost like, you know, it just seems big. Like it's filmed, like it's some, like, um, like some big production by like, say, um, like it feels almost like, uh, um, Kubrick like oh. and then you and then you see the the rich people are all like murdered outside I'm assuming they're supposed to be rich white people yeah and then there are scenes where you think that's a sculpture and you realize it's a person in like Native American garb and it's just like it, it's like the, like the message even there like you know it's almost like they came to reclaim it. Like, Hey, thanks for chop. Thanks for chopping the heads off of all these game animals. That video is just intense. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite videos. She's doing really interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All of her videos are very, uh, they're very arresting. They're really, really striking. Um, I I can't remember the song, but the one where she's on a, uh, she's on a diving board. Oh, that's a great song too. Same album. Yeah. Um, when I when I grow up. Yes. Yeah. When I grow up, that that is when one I of my, grow up. I want to walk. I want to walk, be a forester, and walk through the moss on high heels. Yep. There's some weird lyrics in that. That's a great one. Yeah, but the video to me, it, it's so powerful. It's it's very simple, but it's so powerful. I love it. Yeah. So well, you know, with prog rock, I'm you know I'm a big prog hound. I mean, the first thing I would recommend that some people seem to overlook it. I mean, do you like jazz at all, though? Do you listen to jazz? I do. I haven't I haven't dived really deep into it, but I do like it. Now, you you should try then is Soft Machine, the first five albums with okay. Robert Wyatt playing drums on it. Um, it's it's really the missing link when you start getting like the way. It was explained to me, which I like, like fusion is jazz musicians playing rock influenced jazz. Right. Right. And prop is rock musicians playing jazz influenced. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, rock. And it's soft machine is the missing link. I mean, soft machine, those first few albums are just really incredible. Um, you Hopper, actually the bass player from Soft Machine, was supposed to contribute to the last Atlantic Drone record. He was oh, working wow. on tracks when he passed away. I didn't even know he was sick. Oh wow! And I was emailing him once we were chatting online a little bit, and he said, 
well, Alan is here. We're going to have tea. And he spelled Alan, A-L-L-A-N. And I realized he was talking about Alan Holdsworth. Oh, wow. He was one of, the, my, one of my favorite guitarists of all time. Just, he's one of those guys that he's got all the technical ability, but he writes. He knew how to write a lead. He knew how to write beautiful pieces, just like Soft Machine. These things are beautiful. And they'll go on these tangents and do leads, and they don't feel like songs. You get lost in them. Yeah. But it's, and they had a okay. great horn player they started using mid career. About to say Elvin Jones. That's a drummer for Coltrane. Right. Yeah. Um, geez, how am I forgetting his name? That's making me sad. I was just talking about him yesterday. But they had an incredible horn player, and I generally hate white horn players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just like that. Uh, but he's one of the only great horn players, and they got him in there. And wow. he, um, it was him and Robert Wyatt's an incredible drummer and Mike Hatfield. Now, when you get to the later albums, they're not so good. They sound like what Prague became, and I'm not nuts about them, but the first five, anything with Robert Wyatt on it, and I especially recommend, all the records are named numbers, so they're called second oh, okay. and third. I recommend second and third. Try those out. They're very beautiful, and it really answers a lot of questions about jazz coming into it and it's real proto prog. And I try to mimic the production quality on that stuff. It's very warm. Like they knocked all of the top end off the cymbals, which I do because I don't know when I mix stuff, even though I'm the drummer on it and I'm doing keyboards and stuff too, but I'm like, how important are cymbals? When's the last time a cymbal gave you a chill? Oh my gosh. It doesn't happen. Yeah. I I was, uh, I'm trying to get Jerry Murata on the show. Uh, Trey, Trey Gunn. Yeah. Trey Gunn's trying to help me get, get him on. And, uh, he, he was on Gabriel's second, third and fourth solo albums. And, uh, on, I was uh, listening to melt yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying on, um, I'm trying to remember which one it was, if it was melt or if it was scratch or one of them, he, um, Peter Gabriel said, you're not allowed to use symbols on the entire album no symbols at all. And Jerry was, and, and Jerry and I have been emailing back and forth and he's, he's saying that it, that was an, a, a difficult adjustment to make, is to, you know, cause that's a natural thing for a rock drummer to do is, is to hit those symbols and, and they got taken away from him and he had to, he had to do other things. He was a huge influence on me. Those Gabriel records that he played on were a huge influence on me. Oh, and, wow. um, um, just a minute. Wasn't Melt mostly Phil Collins? Is Jerry on that too? Jerry's on that one too. Um, yeah, he, yeah, Jerry, yeah. And then the next, the next one. Um, all right, Jerry. No, that's the one. That's the one. It's Melt. I'm so not used to having a name to call it that. I'm still used to not calling them by name. Those yeah. records. Yeah. In within like two years, Killing Joke Fire Dances came out. Barely any symbols. I got just got turned on to that Jerry's playing on that record the same year. Okay. And then Kate Bush, the dreaming came out, no symbols. And then King Crimson discipline came out with Bruford barely touching symbols. And it really changed the way I played because I never loved symbols. And I started writing things on rototoms where I could tune it and I still do. So I can tune them to notes so I can play more musically. That was like uh-huh. the year that like, and I turned my snare off. I buy a new snare drum. I take the snare bed off. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't use it. It sounds like a marching band. 
to me. Yeah. It's military. I've never liked the sound of it. But you know, no, Jerry, and he's very modest, Jerry. I remember him saying, oh, my brother Rick, he's the one you need to look at, not me. You know, I remember yeah. him saying that in interviews. We, but I wonder if it's the same Jerry Murata. You got to ask him when you interview him because I always get a kick out of it at the end of uh, I, I love everyone loves everybody loves Raymond. I watched that to relax. Oh, I watched yeah. it with my mother when she was really sick. So I have just kind of nice memories for it. Yeah. And at the end, theme song by Jerry Murata. I'll I'll sh- I'm gonna ask go- him about that. I will email. I'm gonna email him tonight, and I'm gonna ask him about that because I hope it's not a coincidence. I hope he made made a big check because he deserves it. He's a talented guy. Oh yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's funny. He was actually he played on a bunch of the songs, uh, the early versions of the songs on Peter Gabriel's So album, and then he didn't like the way it was going. He he thought it was going too commercial, and he he left. On which album? So Gabriel's big MTV oh. breakthrough. Yeah. My favorite is Security. I love Security. Oh, Security. I love that album. Yeah. He had Larry Fast on there, and that record is like um, yeah. incredibly detailed and very kind of. Um, it's less rock and rolly than any of the other ones. It's got um, uh, what, what's that one incredible? Um, why am I forgetting the names of everything tonight? Uh, San Jacinto. Yes, I think is one of the greatest tracks ever recorded by anybody yeah that record is amazing and people remember that as the shock the monkey tune yep. i'm a little bit bored to shock the monkey it's still not a bad song though if you're gonna have a hit you know that's a great hit oh, like yeah. the butthole or as everyone's like oh they sold out you know what if you're gonna get pepper is your hit hell yeah dude, i have dude. pepper yeah, that's the most psychedelic hit that's ever been on the friggin' radio pepper's a great song i, I still it like is. that song it is, and I love the Butthole Surfers, and they never sold out. No. I heard they're in the studio again. I'm pretty excited. Oh, Hairway awesome. to Stephen, another favorite record of mine. That, oh, that's yeah. in my, my top ten. I love that album. You want to know something funny, though? I would love to know something funny. I've been a fan. I saw them on that tour twice. My mind was blown. I oh. play that record. I love that record. I even collect bootlegs of them during that tour. <laughs> I just love that freedom. It wasn't until two years ago that I caught the joke in the name of that album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's because my name's Steven, yeah. but I didn't catch the stairway to heaven. I was like, yeah. where's the word stairway? I thought it was just nonsense. <laughs> and someone goes, no, stairway, stairway to heaven. I go, oh, my God, I never got that. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. That's awesome. Oh my god. But I guess that Perry I guess that Perry Farrell was a play on peripheral and I was right and everyone told me I was crazy. You know what? I never noticed that. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, you, you never noticed it either? No, no. I, not okay. you know, and it's funny because now I'm thinking about it and it's obvious. Yeah, it's just, it was just funny. I was like, yeah, oh, I'm such a nut for it. I even have promo posters for it. I've got one framed on the wall oh, and my. it's just a record that people don't like that record because they think of the buttholes as a punk band i don't know where anyone got that I, to me they were always a psychedelic band they might have been using a little bit of punk influence in the early days but pure psychedelic band but as far as recommending other stuff um what i mean i'm um always been a huge uh, um um zappa fan but really try some of these records that you can't listen to them the way you listen to pop. You really kind of have to let it happen. Mm-hmm. You, you know, 
I mean, that's the thing with some of this stuff is the way I use music might be different than some other people. I don't actively listen to a lot of the stuff that I listen to, meaning I don't sit in a chair and stare at a wall and just listen to it. I'll be watching a film with the sound turned off. I'll be drawing. I'll be painting. I'll be going for a walk. And it, it, I've been these these records that they're releasing that Zappa did of the Synclavier music. One of them is uh, Feeding the Monkeys and Ma Pazan or, or somewhere, Feeding the Monkeys. And it, it's like just anything generally with Zappa doing instrumental music. And by the way, if you ever had an interest in Zappa, go see Dweezil. He's doing such an incredible job. Is he? I get you. Uh, my eyes water up during the shows. It's incredible. He's he's taking like Frank's leads that I'm recognizing from live versions of like Inca Rhodes, and he's playing them note for note and soulfully too, like oh, Frank would have. And you know it, the show is just incredible. Like they'll go into some crazy stuff. I think one night they were playing like Sinister Footwear and oh, like wow. these things that Frank couldn't even get his band to play. And these guys are doing it, and it is breathtaking. Some at first I thought, oh, he's going to do the easy stuff. He'll do the dance and fool and whatever. Yeah. No, he's like in the middle of the set, and then I was like, I go, is he playing the Grand Wazoo? Oh side of the grand wazoo he played dog breath variations from uncle meat it is breathtaking so this, I mean, this is the zappa plays zappa yeah well now yeah. it's called dweezil zappa because oh, you okay. can't do that but um i'll tell you i think it's the greatest prog thing going there now and i know it's a revivalist thing but the crimson stuff the new revivalist crimson stuff i'm not nuts about it yeah just my opinion i, I mean too much of it i wish he wrote with them I wish you would write stuff for that group. Yeah. But I was listening to it and they just sound like, to me, they just sound like bad covers. Really? To me. Yeah. yeah. And I miss Adrian Blue. I think Adrian Blue is one of the most incredibly talented human beings on the earth. Oh. I think that guy, to play with Frank Zappa and not know how to read a note of music, that's to see anyone else in the world pull that off. And to play as soulful as he did, I saw him discipline tour. Three of a perfect pair tour and B tour. Incredible showman, incredible musician. The guy, and see, there's one thing I was going to bring up before, too. The one thing that's missing in Prague is songwriting. There's a reason why people still, there's a reason why I put on Tarkus three hours ago. <laughs> there's a reason why I still listen to Going for the One by Yes. Oh, and, that's great. Because these guys were great songwriters. The early Genesis albums with Peter Gabriel, yeah. Lamb Lies on Broadway and if you look in close type by the way Brian Eno helped produce it I'm sure that did no small effect on how great that record sounds yeah. there's a reason why that stuff's good it's not about Prague was never about overplaying a lot of kids now I think you know they do stuff and they put together these bands and it just seems like like dream theater. I have a pet peeve for that band. <laughs> it's, all they do is overplay. And I just like, yeah. you know, congrats to them. They're one of the few bands still touring as Prague. And I salute that. I really do. But it's like someone like, yes, even Bill Bruford knew when to just give you four, four yep. time and let the song happen and let the melody and like John Anderson, I mean, come on, he's probably the most important person in prog rock. Oh, he really, yeah. I mean, he wrote 99% of their catalog. Oh yeah. I mean, 
and, and the thing that I liked about them is that, it, you know, they would stretch a song out to 20 minutes, but then they would also give you a two minute song that was just as powerful. Yes. And the other thing about them, too, that I'll give them that I can't give rushes, they will improvise. Yeah, they will go up there and improvise and they'll play the song Awaken, I think is one of the greatest prog songs. Yes. Ever. Written. I just think Awaken, that's off going for the one. And that that song, I've not been able to get bored with that. And I think I got that record when I was 14. <laughs> I still think that is one of those. And to do blissful prog rock, that ain't easy to no. do. I mean, doing what Rush did is, you know. It is good stuff. I mean, I grew up listening to Rush. Yeah. You know, that's like home. That's like a home cooked meal for me. Oh yeah. But you go to see them for it, and everything's exactly the same. So I could never follow them on tour like you could with someone like Yes, where they're giving you something different every night. So when you get in the Soft Machine, you you start looking like I recommended. You start looking at their live releases that had been released um, on CD. And you get like live in Paris, live in Bremen, and the shows, the song is almost completely different because Robert Wyatt had improvised the lyrics. So we'll sing them in the same part, but he improvises, the leads all change, and they use bookends to let themselves know where they are. They were influenced. And then they then they go and um, they go and influence yes, and then you yeah, they influenced I think even Crimson. I mean it's real, but it's not one of those things though where I'm saying you have to like it just because it's proto prog. It really is. I don't know. It's breathtaking. Well, it's just very pretty and very uplifting. I would definitely check it out. I will. I will... Yeah, don't scrub through it. <laughs> no, no, and that's see that's Don't the, let it play because that's part of them is like it really changes the room you're in. I will definitely. It'll really it change the room you're in, like Brian Eno will too. Those are another things there. If you aren't familiar with those records, those records changed my life. I I have an unhealthy obsession. I get yelled at for playing it so much. My girlfriend <laughs> yells at me. Is the Frippin' Eno records? I don't know if you know those. I like no pussyfooting and yeah, no pussyfooting and um. There's bootlegs of that stuff and live ones. and It's all breathtaking. And yeah. Fripp did two solo records, like Let the Power Fall, where he does the Frippertronic stuff. That stuff is so calming and beautiful. And, yep. you know, I know I use the word beautiful a lot, but it's intense, too. And those things are great. And I, I would just think that you were talking before, like, you know, that's old school, going back and checking your records. If you have those and you overlook them, I'm always telling people, like, re- reinvestigate those because I just really think those things they change the way the room is that you're sitting in they change your whole day it's a very interesting because it's too much to focus on it's too it moves like a glacier sometimes yeah so you don't really and you and you're not there's no expectations because you're not waiting for a chorus and there's something freeing about that because it's like with me I always wondered why the lessons there's a lot of lessons i think that got taught to us in art and music right like kerouac to me i wish everyone wrote like kerouac he just wrote and it was about the beauty saw in the world and there i'm using the word beauty a lot of years and it, it it was like the way he approached it where it wasn't a story it was a chunk of something it was like all right i'm gonna start writing right now and i'm gonna end it on and i went home and my mom was there and my cat had passed away. Why isn't that an ending? That's the way we end our days. Th those are big things. What yeah. Burroughs, I think, made a big statement about writing. He said, I'm not an entertainer. 
I'm not a storyteller. Why couldn't writing have gone that way a little bit more? You know, what he did was intense. I mean, you throw in, like, you know, the horrible, (laughs) (laughs) let's call it inappropriate sexual behavior, let's say, (laughs) murder and whatever. But the thing is, is like there are lessons being learned. And then when Coltrane shows up and he says, okay, here's the riff. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you the, this riff. Da 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 off Africa brass. And then he just goes off and leads over. And at the end, bring the theme back and we'll end it. And they would improvise live in the studio. How come nothing was learned from that either? It doesn't seem like, you know, you know what's strangely one of the only people that learned from that? And I'm not a big deadhead by any means. But I'll tell you, Jerry Garcia learned that lesson. And I think that's where the whole jam band thing comes from is Jerry listening to miles and listening to Coltrane and going, let's do a 20 minute solo. And I think that's there. And, yeah. and you know, realized what a great guitar player Jerry was about four years ago. Someone turned me because I never liked their honky tonk kind of stuff. The hits are on the radio. I'm exactly the same way. Yeah, but Dark Star and some other pieces like that where they improvise every night. Someone sent me, as a joke, a DVD filled with MP3s of Dark Star. And I'm telling you, I can play all 100 track versions of it, and I cannot get bored with it because Jerry's doing these things. And once again, I'm not a heavy deadhead, but Jerry got that note from Coltrane. It makes total sense. Steven, man, this has been fantastic. I really do appreciate your time tonight. Oh, sure. It's great talking to you, Mark. I've, where can people find your work and where, how can they follow you online and, and uh, support you and the fantastic artwork you're making? That's what I call it, Mark. Fantastic art. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm alone, I say that to myself, yeah. Mark. <laughs> Why are you fantastic? Steve, share it with the world. <laughs> See, this is why you couldn't be Steve serious. Yeah, if I could accept a compliment, I, you know, <laughs> I never will be. I'm be able to do that. It's like to me, I'm like I'm a carpenter, like my dad. You know, I feel like I just have to keep working. You know, maybe that's yeah. that's a good thing. I think I never stop the rest. Exactly. Um, um, I'm on Instagram, Stephen underscore Serio, C E R A O. I'm on. Facebook. My website is stevenserio.com. Um, I've got a lot of stuff up there and I've got hundreds more stuff going on. I've got snippets of uh, the videos uh, of my films are up on Vimeo and they're on Facebook. Um, um, got a new book coming out, Sunbeam on the Astronaut. There's a, a book set coming out. Wow, cool and alternative comics are releasing it. And that's going to have a uh, memory stick of all of my films to date, um, about six six full albums of uh, music, and uh, a book of my paintings, a copy of uh, Sunbeam on the Astronaut, and I'm doing graphics for the whole box. I've already spent like 150 hours <laughs> on the graphic for the box itself, because I'm like, how often do you get to just do a box? That's true. <laughs> so I'm just having fun with it. And... Um, yeah, and we'll have a new LP um, talking to uh, Psychophone Records right now about uh, releasing the soundtracks to the, my two uh, latest films that aren't even done yet. <laughs> so like I said, I've 
my soundtracks first. <laughs> the soundtracks might be out in LP before the movies are done. <laughs> that'd be hey, that'd be great because I I love the music. Oh, thanks. But yeah, you know, a lot of stuff going on. A lot of working on a lot of different stuff. Always busy. Always something new. But yeah, get, anyone get get on there. Get a hold of me if you need anything. And I'm just finishing. Uh, I just finished doing a. Um, uh, cover for a new um, record by The Residents. It's a compilation. It'll be on Secret Records, and uh, it's called Loss of the Lizard Lady. It's a collection of Residents music that featured uh, Molly uh, Harvey on vocals. That's coming out. I'm doing a, a book on The Residents, a, a story of The Residents, fully falsified and completely surreal <laughs> <laughs> version. Of, that's coming out. A German publisher, uh, uh, Eyeball Museum, is putting that out. And um, I just finished writing a book, actually, that I'm trying to figure out whether I should illustrate or not. I'm hoping I don't have to, but (laughs) I don't I'm not sure if people read anymore. So I probably want to have an illustrator and spend another two years on it. (laughs) That's about it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much again for spending so much time with me. It's been a great talk. I really do appreciate it. Oh, good. I hope it was fun. It was a blast. Are you still recording? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.